ridiculous. Hello and welcome to Perfect Stranger Things. I'm your host, Anthony Ladon. I write books about history and religion and pop culture. My co-host is Steve Osborne. He's a stand-up comic based in the Bay Area. We're both from the Bay Area. More importantly, we are both children of the 80s and 90s. Today we're covering The Vanishing of Will Byers, Season 1, Episode 1. In my opinion, it is the best pilot episode of any series ever. I love this show. We are going to do deep dives. We're going to talk about character development. But having said that, I also should say when I watch television, I like to have fun. I have the most fun watching my favorite television next to my friend Steve. And of course, Steve likes to find what is most funny about every episode. I most look forward to just laughing hard a few times. And I hope that you will look forward to that too. But before we get to Steve, here are a few words of wisdom from the one, the only, Mr. Wilford Brimley. You got a story in here. This is a damn story you ever read. Tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna sit right here and talk about it. It's the right thing to do. Steve, welcome to the very first podcast for Perfect Stranger Things. How do you feel? Uh, I feel pretty good. Um, a little nervous. Okay, sure. that's fine. Nerves are good. You can channel those. Yeah, I mean, you can, or you can uh, poop your pants. That's <laughs> another thing. Which is, I mean, I guess it's a way of channeling, but um, I'm not sure how productive it is. When's the last time you pooped your pants, Steve Osborne? Uh, not as long ago as it should have been. <laughs> I'd love to say, ooh, I let me think. It must have been when I was a child, but that would be incorrect. I would just have to think, when was the last time I was kind of not feeling well? Steve, we've done surprisingly little preparation for the structure of this podcast. So a lot of what we will do today is just me springing ideas upon you and having you riff off the cuff. <laughs> uh, we don't have to do another one of these if this doesn't work out. So, Well, see, that's I've been thinking about hard about that. I've been thinking, like, how do you know when to end a podcast? I really think that the best answer to that is that it's random. It should just be a random event that ends every podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I had a podcast <laughs> that was just like the pandemic hit, and uh, we've never revisited. <laughs> so I'm going to try to bring a little bit of chaos into this podcast, but I will reveal what that looks like later. Right now, I'd like to start with a question. Sure. Okay. And this is going to be harder than it sounds initially. So give it some thought, all right? Okay. Remember, I'm dumb. So <laughs> Then this is going to be right up your alley. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Steve Osborne, you can either have Steve Harrington's hair, but you have to be as smart as Steve Harrington, or you can have Mr. Clark's science teacher mustache and be as smart as Mr. Clark. What do you choose? Now, remember, I, I, I want to hear some dead space here. I want to hear you thinking about this. Right. Okay. In the meantime, I'll take a little sip of my coffee. Okay. Well, I don't have hair. I have the ability to grow a mustache, but even that's not 
all that impressive. It's um, so it could be that either one is an improvement for you, right? I mean, if I grow a mustache, it looks like my facial hair had a stroke. <laughs> um, hair, yeah. Are you, Steve, are you saying it's uneven? It's just it's a it's a whole yeah. I mean, it, like for some reason you go, how is that side of the mustache not move yet the rest of your whole face is moving? Like how does that? <laughs> It's a uh, constant state of twitching, is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna. Go. <laughs> I haven't had hair in a really long time, so the idea of having that hair would like it seems like I'd be like, yeah, check out this hair. But then the other side of it's like, yeah, but then now what? You know, I gotta, I gotta style it. I gotta, I gotta maintain it. It's right? gonna be a whole thing. It's gonna. It's a whole thing you're gonna add an entire new element to your life i mean look and it's I'm not just about the hair <laughs> it's and about I'm, the lifestyle that comes with the hair and i'm a dummy now right and so what ends up happening <laughs> is is that i'm not gonna have a whole lot else going on except my hair really i mean like mm-hmm. i feel like i'm really gonna be fixated and focused on my hair so the thing is i'll have the hair and that'll be an attractive quality from a distance mm-hmm. but then my obsession with my hair and my overall just lack of ability to hold a conversation makes the kind of you know nullifies the hair whereas a mustache mm-hmm. um yeah and now so the question i have is um in this apparent like supernatural pact with the devil or whatever i've made mm-hmm. um does the can i shave the mustache or is it just there in that style in perpetuity you can shave it, but it will grow back with a vengeance, and it'll probably be bushier than before, and it might grow over your nose, so oh. I wouldn't touch it. <laughs> so this it. is getting out of control. Okay, so I just got to leave. So we don't know how volatile this mustache is. I so absolutely I would, assume the would same, not mess with the mustache. I assume the same rule applies to the hair. Oh, yeah. The hair is permanent, for sure. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm going mustache. <laughs> All right, here's how I propose to do this podcast. I thought it was over. (laughs) All right, so I've identified seven storylines in this first episode. I went down to my daughter's bedroom and I stole one of her 45 D&D dice. And I stole an eight-sided... What's a singular? Is it the singular dice or die? It's die. All right, so I've stolen... Yeah, actually, well, plural, if you have more than three, it's a diocese. It's a diocese. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So good. So I've stolen an eight-sided die. They should have called Die Hard 2 Dice Hard. That's our new podcast (laughs) name. (laughs) Die Hard 7 will be Bruce Willis as a bishop, and it will be called (laughs) Diocese Hard. Uh, All right. I'm going to roll this. You're going to hear me roll it. This is not like a sound effect. This is actually me rolling a die. And that's going to determine which of the seven storylines we discuss. Now, it could be that we don't get to every storyline in every episode. But if the number eight is rolled, well, Steve, that's a goocher. Okay. And when an eight is rolled, we just end this thing. (laughs) And we never speak about it again. Are you with me? I'm not even sure what number I'm rooting for now. <laughs> okay, here we go. We're going to roll the first one. We got a seven. Okay. The storyline seven is Ellen Benny. So mm-hmm. I'm going to read a synopsis. This is my synopsis of this storyline. 
Eleven sneaks into Benny's diner and eats french fries before being discovered and caught by Benny. Benny notices a tattoo on her wrist and learns that her name is Eleven. Eleven. What's that mean? What's it mean? No. I'll be damned. She speaks. Elle uses her dark phoenix powers to stop a noisy fan. Benny calls social services, stupidly ignoring the song White Rabbit by Jefferson mm-hmm. Airplane. Mm-hmm. Things get a little stranger when the social services woman shoots Benny in the head. Eleven kills two henchmen on her way out the back door. Steve, if you hear White Rabbit on the radio, you got to put your head on a swivel, man. Yeah. To me, that is a modern-day air raid siren. <laughs> yeah, radio stations are not allowed to play that song. <laughs> not in Hawkins, Indiana. I'm just assuming that Benny has a drug-riddled past, and he's not sure whether or not he's having an acid flashback. Right. He hears the song. He's like, all right, this child's not real. Let's have some fries. I've never seen anyone eat fries the way that Elle eats those fries. When she holds it like it's uh, like a a very large apple. I want to try that. I'm glad you mentioned it because that immediately when I'm like, is that going to change my whole fry experience? Because like you eat them one at a time because it just seems logical. But like I'm thinking, man, you grab a handful and just eat it like an apple. And it's like that mouth feels so different. Well, the other thing about it is that Eating fries hot is a much different experience than eating fries cold. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, by the time you're getting to the end, you're already regretting it. Uh, not to say you wouldn't regret it the other way, but I just think it would. <laughs> it, let's just put it this way. If you're going to eat fries in the first place, you've already made a life decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we try to like, oh, well, if we eat it like this, if I eat it as if it's delicate, maybe... I won't look like the pig that I really am. There's no one that's listening to this podcast that has ever not finished a helping of fries. Right. You eat every fry. You even eat the gross fries at the bottom of the bag. Yeah, you get down to the bottom, you eat those little witch fingernails. You're just like, yeah, dude, whatever. Punch them. (laughs) So in this storyline, we learn that Elle has superpowers, right? Right. I think that there's something about Millie Bobby Brown that just sells this for me. I feel like, I mean... We should probably talk about my history with child actors and my general distaste for child actors. Mm-hmm. Children in general, but yeah. <laughs> so, child, child actors who eventually become hor- horrible adults is just the perfect metaphor for why you should not love your children. The more I, affirmation they get, the worse adults they become. I'm not going to touch that one. There's just something about the way that she's playing this that just is fantastic. The way that she's eating the fries, you know, I've never seen someone eat fries that way, but totally sells the desperation of her situation. And then the way that she turns that fan off as if there's just, it's, it's nothing. She's done this a thousand times. Yeah. It really creates this upside down mentality where up is down and down is up. And something that's freakish to us is normal to her. And something that's normal to us is like an act of desperation for her. Um, and just the fact that she looks like a normal kid, but her head shaved. Um, right. You know, just that little thing to kind of indicate, like, there's something seriously wrong here. What I like about this is that your instinct is to be, you know, you're like, hey, there's a there's a child that's 
running in hospital gown there's something i feel for her right like you're mm-hmm. every you know even if you're not a parent there's like a parental instinct but then she stops a fan and it's just straight up murders some people now those people were dangerous it, it appears <laughs> but but she didn't send them across the rooms and then get them to sort of be disoriented no it's mm-hmm. they were done and yeah, so, it took us a full season of Game of Thrones to allow Arya to actually kill someone. Right. Elle kills someone season one, episode one. Right. And so what that does is it changes your perspective on her, right? Does she know she's killing? And if she does, she's okay with it. If she doesn't know she's killing, oh, that's even more dangerous <laughs> because she exactly. could just kill again in a way that's instinctual right like that's mm-hmm. her her defense mechanism so yeah. that becomes so so now you have a whole new set of problems right which is how do you help somebody who may not even realize you're trying to help them and may not have the ability to not kill you you know those things come into play and so it's yeah again i don't think enough can be said for how quickly this show did so much you didn't wait the episode or two to get a glimpse of a creature yeah. or, yeah. I mean, and now you've got, you don't just have one danger, <laughs> you know, there's, there's multiple levels of, now they may all coalesce as we find out, you know, while we watch the, the show, but, but at this moment, there's just a smattering of danger in Hawkins. This first episode is really ambitious. It's like four different shows wrapped into one, you know, it's, it's very much a group of young kids dealing with adult problems like the Goonies or whatever, Stand By Me. But it's also a story about parenting in the face of loss. It's also kind of a cop movie, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of a typical big cop in a little town movie. And all of that, you know, I haven't even talked about any of the science fiction elements of this yet. Um, So it's super ambitious. And I think that each one of these elements is really well established in this first episode. There's so many other dynamics that you can almost forget at times that there's a paranormal danger. Yeah. And And on top of that, you've got this nostalgia thing happening in the same way sort of we experienced the Wonder Years, you know, as teenagers. Our parents were experiencing the Wonder Years in a much different way, on a much different level. And so it's also doing that work at the same time. So just a really impressive first episode. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw it. I liked the font. The font um, the font is really important because the font brings me back to almost every Stephen King novel. Yeah, and consciously modeled after that. I mean, there's so much Stephen King in this as well, but yeah. just the attention to details. You know, the, the opening music is sort of reminiscent of Halloween. I mean, we've got um, we've got monsters immediately, right? And we've got science fiction pretty pretty quickly. Well, it starts out with a guy being killed aliens style, right? Right. You know, scene one, we know that there's a monster on the loose, and he's going to eat some fools, right? Right. So you got that. I think that in addition to sort of revealing the monster right off, you don't see the monster kind of like Jaws. Right, But instead of those yellow floating barrels with Jaws or the music, electricity is used in place of the monster. Right. The presence is felt. Like, you see that in, like, in ghost movies, right? Like where it gets cold. You know, all of a sudden yeah. someone can see their breath and, oh, something just shifted, you know. 
Yeah, that I mean, actually that's... was just something that Bruce Willis does in every movie. I don't. Know, it's just some weird, some weird people... aura that he has, and they, so they just wrote that into the movie. Some actors and actresses can cry on cue. He can make his breath seem very warm. <laughs> He's amazing. I mean, that's just one of his many talents. Yeah, I mean, he used that talent a lot in Dice Hard because, as we recall, that was in the airport and there was a lot of snow. And they actually were like, hey, this is not real snow. How are we going to do this effect? And, and they're like, well, we got Willis. <laughs> we're way out of it. <laughs> All right, I'm rolling it. <clears throat> it's a four, Steve. Okay. All right. So the fourth storyline that I've identified is Nancy Barb and Steve Harrington. Nancy is on the verge of upgrading her social status because she's in with Steve Harrington. Barb is worried about being left behind. Nancy has a brief rendezvous with Harrington in the bathroom. That night, he shows up at her window and tries to seduce her. Steve, I've got a question about this for you. Okay. Is Barb being a good friend? Because I think that's the popular narrative. Or is she just worried about her own social predicament? That that's a great question. Um, I'm actually glad that the fates have brought us here because during this rewatch, the Barb character always always stuck with me. <laughs> it's cause, it's because she's your ideal woman. I don't know, maybe because she looks like Thelma, and I know that you have a thing for Thelma. Yeah, there's a little bit of that going on for sure. Um, I think it's easy because. Because Barb is, it's kind of like a voice of reason more often than not, but also sympathetic just by virtue of not being hot. <laughs> you know, yeah, like I think, it, and I think that's how people read her. She's like Jiminy Cricket or whatever. Right. I think it is, it's unfair to the Barb character to suggest that she's this elevated sense of, you know, whether it's social wisdom or she's more altruistic in how she cares about her friend i mean she's clingy right i mean i think there's a certain element of that right i mean and that's that's not atypical for someone in that situation and and i i think that it almost becomes kind of an amorality right i mean it's easy to sit there and say okay well is she somebody who's who's a moral compass and someone that is a conscience and and maybe a voice of reason or is she just another kid and right. we just happen to see her as that's this is what her sort of social lot in life is at this particular juncture. Well, and high school is a lot about um, survival, sure. social survival, clinging on to people who also want to survive. Very few people get to choose their own friends in high school. You know, if you're lucky enough to have chosen your own friends in high school, then you're one of the popular kids or you're on a sports team or something. But for the most part, like, I think that Barb and Nancy are friends because they're both pretty invested in their grades. And that in itself is something of a, you know, lower social level in most high schools. Right. So they're probably friends for that reason. Of course, you're also worried about being alone. You know, everyone has to sit somewhere at lunch. And I think Barb is probably trying to survive. Well, and I think that that's a great choice of words, right? Because we actually see it play out that when she is left alone from the pack, when she is separated from her friend that she views as someone for social survival, she's now vulnerable, whether it be metaphorical. Yeah, she's the wounded or, gazelle. She yeah. is, she's going to be I mean, she's absolutely blood and she's, yeah, it's, it's all there. <laughs> I mean, that's just a. 
mean, not, not that you should necessarily live life like a demigorgon is going to get you at any given moment, but don't not. You know what I mean? All right. One more question about this storyline. Is Nancy, is Nancy's attraction to Steve ill-conceived? Is it, does it lack wisdom? Is it foolish? Sure. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, but in the context of high school, it's not, um, it wouldn't be shocking. Right. And I think that's why it's really good that this is, I think that there's a certain authenticity to this. Right. I mean, on one hand, you go, Nancy seems too smart for that. Like, yeah, but not when you're in high school and, and the hormones are going, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we've seen plenty of relationships that shouldn't have worked in high school, but it was it's just clearly what happens when pheromones start popping off, right? I mean, we've so all listened to the Tone Loke songs. Oh, absolutely. And so she's, you know, I mean, she's, is it bad fit? Yeah, it's a bad fit. Um, is it run contrary to her goals, um, at least academically and maybe career wise? Sure. But in terms of goals of wanting to fit in, which is typical in high school and, and wanting, I mean, he's, he's the cool guy, right? I mean, look at that hair. Look at that hair. All right. I'm going to roll he's the like dice. Lion-O. <laughs> he's like lion He's like lion Yeah. <laughs> I would have never made the connection. Wow. He is a little bit like, I mean, insofar as lion also had amazing hair. Yeah, a main, if you will. <laughs> the eight-sided die roll again. All right, number one. This is the Mike Lucas, Will, and Dustin storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boys finish a 10-hour D&D campaign, and then they disperse. Will is chased and captured by a beast of some sort. The other three boys go to school the next day, get bullied, play with a new radio, and are interrogated by Hopper. Against his stern instructions, the boys go out to look for Will that night. But instead of finding Will, they find someone else. Yeah, this was, I mean, I, I think this is great, too. Like, they've been playing the game for 10 hours. And the mom had no idea they have been playing the game for 10 hours. <laughs> Hi! Is it mom, we're living over my campaign! You mean the end? 15 after. No, oh, my God. It's a school night, Michael. I just put Holly to bed. You can finish next weekend. But then I ruined the flow. Michael. I'm serious, Mom. The campaign took two weeks to plan. How was I supposed to know it was going to take ten hours? You've been playing for ten hours? Dad, don't you think that's one more... I think you should listen to your mother. She's and then, and then she's upset that they played for ten hours. Never at any point did she ever want, need, or wonder where he was <laughs> during that ten hour time frame. But as soon as it was after the fact, it's like, well, geez, you shouldn't have been playing for ten hours. It's like, well, bro, you were home. Mike's dad, Ted Wheeler. I think he's the unsung hero of this show. <laughs> I laugh at everything he says. Yeah, he's great. That he's guy is good. so fantastic. Yeah, no, he is. It, 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 he's so perfect in that role. And, and again, it's such a classic um, uh, 80s trope. He just wants his TV to work and he just wants to eat his chicken. He wants to watch Knight Rider. <laughs> That's what he was watching. He watch Knight Rider. Right? Yeah. I, I tell you what, I've watched this first episode a lot, a lot. And I never don't laugh at Ted. <laughs> Did you ever play D&D? 
I played it once. Did you play it with Crazy Shay? I did not play it with Crazy Shay. That my one time I ever played D and D was with Crazy Shay, and I'm sure that my mom would have disapproved. Yes, I was. I'll be honest. When I was offered the opportunity to play Dungeons and Dragons, you might as well have been offering me like uh, black tar heroin. I was so scared that. I don't know what was going to happen, but I just know that in my house, it was very clear. Like, I mean, I didn't know much about drugs or alcohol or venereal diseases at the time. Their STDs was later, but they were VD at the time. Uh, None of that was really all that concerning to my family. But the idea that I might play a role-playing game and then go missing or summon some sort of beast or just, or Mm -hmm. or we would um, like get swords. And like, she's like, well, people like they, they, get swords and like they they kill each other i'm like who's where are the children getting swords <laughs> well i know where I, look we didn't get swords but we did get uh butterfly knives at the flea market well sure that yeah no, that, that i mean that, that, that was the other thing that was okay to do right <laughs> go to the flea market uh get yourself some bootleg metallica cassettes that say one thing but play a different song and then get uh butterfly knives that will cut you immediately like without even having to open them <laughs> Like the casing of it was probably the most dangerous part. <laughs> yeah. So the one time I ever played D&D, it was, uh, you know, I went over to Jeff's house. And, of course, you know, his mom wouldn't approve either because she was, like, worried about demons getting in us or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we went over to Crazy Shays, and they were about to start, like, I don't know, probably like a five-hour campaign. I had no idea what was happening. I had no clue what was happening. I, I hung around for maybe a half an hour, and I was out. Yeah, that's very similar to my story. Uh, I think I died. Like, my character died really quick because I was just not. Like, it was early, too. It was like, okay, you're confronted by a blah blah blue and you, uh, you know, do you use this? Do you use that? Roll that. And I'm like, I don't know, fireball, or like kind of like the show. And they were like, no, you just, I mean, if you don't, if you, you'll die if you don't you, you I mean the odds of and i'm like great let's let's go for it like i swung for the fences and died and uh and they kept playing and i just went in the other room and i think i i, I just played nintendo now I, I watched this scene with my daughter last night now you may Dude, not she, know she this. does she does role playing stuff right she's always involved in at least like four different campaigns gotcha so your house is just riddled with demons I got demon. I, like I said, she's got f- over forty multi-sided dice. I'm assuming that each represents a demon. It has to. Yeah. So, I anyway, the fact that even you rolling this dice makes me nervous. <laughs> I don't know what you're. This is just one more way in which I'm either a better parent or I'm a much worse parent. <laughs> there's. I. I. We ought to mention that there's tons of ET in this show. You know, everything from the opening shot to boys playing a board game, eating a sausage and pepperoni pizza, to the way that Elle is discovered in the woods. This is all very... Yeah, the, bunnies, the bunny suits, right? There's, there's a lot. There's bikes. There's bikes and flashlights. Uh, there's Star Wars toys. The boys, I mean, they are the main characters of the show, or at least that they're promoted as such. I don't know if their storyline is the prominent storyline yet. Well, I think it's what what I really was impressed with with this show. There's a lot of characters, and there's a fair amount of arcs that um, yeah that are all compelling. And I never feel 
like oh, this is a steve nancy episode you know what i mean it's like and to some degree i mean i think that that also works with sort of that throwback to the 80s concept right i mean i think i think the 80s did do a really good job of of being so much more character driven mm-hmm. um you know and which were a lot of high concepts you know when you look at star wars for example like the the original trilogy what we talked about this at length uh off air because that's how we mostly communicate um <laughs> is that the original star wars like while they, w- they had these grand special effects for the time because they were somewhat limited in the sense of of like the effects that you have now um the characters you know were the main focus so yeah the characters were, had to carry that the plot so the relationships between them were as important as anything else going on absolutely and, and then so by the time you get to the prequels now you can open the space you have so much technology you can expand the universe to the point where now the universe becomes the primary focus as opposed to the actual right. character interaction that's right all right i'm uh, i'm rolling it here we go got ourselves a three steve okay uh the third storyline i've identified is the buyer's household this is jonathan and joyce buyers primarily here it goes joyce discovers that will is missing she blames jonathan files a report with hopper calls lonnie there's a flashback scene with joyce and will where joyce brings will movie tickets phone call convinces her that she hears will breathing and she hears some sort of sci-fi monster, too. The phone gets all fried up by some kind of upside-down pyrotechnics. Hello? Hello? Lonnie? Hopper? Who is this? Will? 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 What? what have you done to my boy? And Steve, my question to you is Is Winona Ryder a good actor? Yeah. I think so. Do you disagree? I was asking myself that question. I the first time I watched this, I was just happy to see Winona Ryder getting work. Right. Um, I think she has some sort of local connection to where we grew up. Yes, Petaluma High. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just happy to see her on the screen again. It was great. And then, but this time, this rewatch, I was thinking, hmm, is she overacting? I mean, she's clearly she's upset, and she's with warrant. You know, justifiably, she's upset. I don't know, man. She's a little maniacal, right? We get a lot of this image of her as this, I mean, not only is she a single mom, but things are not going well for her. She's asking a lot of her kids to help pick up some of the slack of the life that they're leading. Right. So you have a, a, an older son who's clearly having to kind of be not just a brother and not just Mm -hmm. a son, but maybe a little bit of a, of a stepfather in some ways in terms of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And you get a sense that everything that led to where she's at, like her maniacalness is a pre-existing condition to some degree, right? Like she's, she's yeah, high strong. You believe that she loves her children intensely. You also believe 
that she's a total mess. Yeah, and so you kind of almost get a sense with with the kids that they're managing her, maybe not just the situation, but it. She's as much a part of that situation, mm-hmm. right? Like, so she's trying her best, and she may not be. She seems right out the gate like you don't know if she's real trustworthy or reliable. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I would suggest that I I think that is she a good actress? I was pretty convinced by that. I didn't feel like. I mean, I felt like it was a touch over the top, but I felt like this person is over the top. Um, so my question to you, Steve, was, is Winona Ryder a good actor? Your answer is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I feel like she steals the scene as if she was shoplifting. <laughs> That's a 20-year-old reference. <laughs> look look it up, folks. Yeah, it's a... That's this is you think you I'm telling you right now, this show isn't the only thing that's retro. My humorous references also will be very dated. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, who among us hasn't shoplifted, Steve? I I used to shoplift at the Sebastopol Apple Ranch. I don't know about you. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's up for grabs. (laughs) I don't even I don't even think they accepted currency, to be honest. Yeah, they don't. There's no one's doing inventory. One other little bit about this episode that I want to call out is the Hopper as wounded creature. He's clearly waking up to alcohol and cigarettes, but we don't learn until much later that he's talking about his daughter as if she's alive, and yet we know that his daughter died. Right. So it it, it does a lot of work. That little scene does a lot of work to show you this guy's grieving, but he's not ready to face reality yet. You know, he can't even talk about it. I mean, I, I guess he's a side character he or he's an ensemble character or something like that. Every scene that he's in makes me believe this is a cop movie. Right. And that's and that again, that's another tip of the hat to the showrunners here that here's this. I mean, you need a cop in this scenario, right? You need a skeptical cop um, because that's that's how this works. Right. You have. But he, he brings his own degree of baggage right like everybody here has a backstory which could seem exhausting um but they it's it's all done with an economy of of time spent on establishing and then letting the characters continue on through that filter of the backstory that we don't necessarily need to belabor we just get to see it go through and and so all right we get a sense of of who he is and why he is the way he is and uh, there's still some mysteries that obviously we got an answer but um but he tries you know he's a guy that's shoving a lot of things down so he's he doesn't have a lot of time for hysterical mothers or um you know any of the other stuff that goes on stolen gnomes stolen gnomes it's just like guys just make do just get by and i think in a lot of ways they're modeling uh, Hopper specifically, uh, probably after a number of cops, but specifically the sheriff in Jaws. Right. So, yeah, I mean, he's in a small town, with small town problems. That's the helpful. typewriter scene where he's filling in the report. That's an intentional homage to Chief Brody's shark report in the first Jaws. Right. Um, all right. Next storyline. Uh, we have an eight, Steve. <laughs> Good night. It. Oh, Jesus, man, that's a gucci. 
I invite you back next week as Steve and I will stare that cosmic goocher in the face and try for episode two. For now, I want to mention that this podcast has a cousin podcast called Cocoons of Horror. This is a Steve and Anthony joint as well, and on that podcast we cover the films that stand behind Stranger Things. These are the films that are featured with specific homages in Stranger Things and serve as a cultural undercurrent for this show. That is called Cocoons of Horror. Here is an excerpt of our first episode, Jaws. Do you have an elevator pitch for this movie? Yeah, I can only think of how my wife would describe it. <laughs> wow. Sweaty guys chase shark. <laughs> Perfect. Sold. Yeah. Yeah, right? So I'm watching the movie intentionally while she's out because she's notoriously not a fan of sweaty movies. Um, <laughs> this is absolutely the sweatiest yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, this is Cool Hand Luke in a boat. And, uh, and so I watch it. Like, I'm like an hour in. And then she comes home. She's like, oh, I'll finish watching it with you. And I know what that means is I'll sit on the couch and be on my phone. Because, like, for her, the horror of this film is what's seen. And it's uh, Robert Shaw. Close up. Uh, (laughs) Who famously was drunk for most of the film. Which, you know, can make you sweat even more. Robert Shaw. Just what an absolute treat. From from the moment he's scratching his nails on the chalkboard. This shark. Swallow you whole. Shaking, tenderizing, down you go. And we gotta do it quick. Gotta bring back the tourists, so they put all your businesses on a paying basis. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for 10. Like, there's not any, even when he's repeating himself, and clearly it's because he's drunk. Did I say there's lying already, Chief? You know, it's just, it's so good. Okay. It is so I've got good. this movie. I want to talk about Shaw, but. Bad hat, Harry. Bad hat. That guy is quite something. He was getting right in his face. First of all, he was pretty confident because I'm pretty sure he's not wearing a whole lot of clothes in that scene. No. And then he just gets right in his face, and he's got one ear under the flap and one ear out, and he's expecting no one to comment on his hat. We know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? Some bad hat, Harry. That was... <laughs> bad hat. Where does bad hat... In, in, I mean, in terms of insults, I mean, clearly there's something cultural. I don't want to jump the shark, so to speak, on this, but... Well, it, it's elegant. It's so simple. <laughs> so right. simple. And he didn't say anything about his man breasts, which he could have. <laughs> Easily. But I feel like they've been down that road before. That's why there was already tension. <laughs> and like they had like kind of an agreement. They had an agreement. They said, look, we can do all these conversations we want. But if you just leave my saggy man boobs alone. Spielberg was like, I need a man with man boobs for this part. And then Roy Schreider was like, uh, you know what? I'm not going to say anything about his man boobs. Can I just, can I, can I like comment on his hair? Spielberg was like, no, we'll give him a hat. Well, Spielberg, the genius director that he is like, I'm setting Roy up. I'm going to let him improvise this scene and I'm giving him, I'm, I'm serving it up on a tee. But Roy, you know, they actually always call him Coy Roy because he's always like, he doesn't want to go that far. Like he won't, like Roy Scheider is notoriously known in the biz for quote, not going there, end quote. And so this is another one of those circumstances. So he just threw out bad hat. 
And the weirdest thing was is that the other guy's reaction, how like upset he got, he actually handpicked that hat from home. <laughs> so so he actually was super excited to get this role. That he was had, not in costume. He brought that. Right. So he you know, he's he's you know, he's been wrestling with body image issues his whole life. So he's kind of prepped. He's like, I know what's coming. And when he goes off on the hat and he's like, this is this is anything but a bad hat. This is good hat. I know this is good hat. And they cut it right away because my I, wife loves this hat. My wife cannot climax without this hat. <laughs> that scene ends so abruptly because uh, bad hat Harry took a full on swing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then they're like, we want to keep this PG. You're going to have to do less F-bombs, Roy. He's like, but that hat. I'm just triggered by this hat. Now, you won't hear this on the internet or in any interview with any of the, the production, but I will tell you this. The man breast actor got offended, threw away the hat. Richard Drivis got the hat out of the trash and wore it around New York City for the next three years. That's right. And that's why him and Roy Scheider never spoke after Jaws. <laughs> Another fun fact is... Um, Richard Dreyfus was so taken by the dailies that he actually helped Steven Spielberg uh, design uh, the aliens from Close Encounters based on that guy. <laughs> the and argument was the hat. Because <laughs> he was like, I don't want them to have hats. <laughs> they almost, in fact, there was even a rewrite at one point. They were just talking about, like, do we want to make the movie just called Hat? And. <laughs> And it's that guy just terrorizing the beaches. <laughs> uh, you think you've seen Bad Hatch, Chief? Uh, it's, I I guess people would probably have guessed that we're covering Jaws today. Well, at this point, yeah. I mean, it's I think it's a given. Because <laughs> I mean, at this point, if you're like well, otherwise known as Hat, <laughs> right? What <laughs> people right now are like? I mean, I think they've made the connection, right? They're like Dreyfus, Scheider. Was, was Scheider in Stakeout? No, no. That was Estevez. Oh, okay. You start going through Dreyfus's filmography. Like, was he in Gryffindor's tribe? Nope, nope. That was Janet Elton. Welcome to Hats in Movie History. <laughs> Steve and Anthony. <laughs> Hats and a little bit of Dreyfus. Next week, we'll be talking about the Mask of Zorro. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I first texted you and said, which, you know, which film should we do first? I gave you like four options. And you said, your gut tells you Jaws. Yeah. So, why is that? Because I can think of a lot of reasons why Jaws works for us in particular. Right. Well, fun fact, this is only the second time I've ever seen Jaws all the way through. Me too. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. 
Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. See, I feel like Jaws was always like on, like TBS. And so I would walk into it at certain points to the point where I would like, I get it. I think I, I think I get it. Like, if anybody asked if I'd seen Jaws, I'm like, I had to have, right? Because, you know, I've seen the beach try to get closed, but then not get closed. I've seen plenty of shark things. But then I got to the point where I started mashing up Jaws 2, because if, if ever Jaws was on TV, it was part of, like, a Jaws marathon. Mm, mm-hmm. So if Chances I would like to tune you, in throughout yeah, you're the, gonna, right. And if I see Scheider, I'm like, well, this is, is this one, is this two? To the point where even I thought that the Jaws 2 poster where he's, the, uh, the shark is coming after the girl uh, water skiing. I thought that was the original Jaws poster for a time. Now, my experience is different in that I consciously, like, I strategically avoided Jaws. Hmm. Because I've never been into horror flicks until very right. recently. And on top of that, I think that the first time I was ever aware of Jaws as a concept was my oldest sister complaining that my dad had been promising her to teach her how to swim. Mm-hmm. We were at like this camp at Catalina Island and he, she was complaining, but my dad had just seen jaws. And so he refused to go in the water. Wow. So that's a, yeah. So that amazing. What this film did is like, there's some things where people are like, Ooh, this movie makes me scared to stay at a hotel or this movie makes me scared to go in elevators. This is like, I'm scared of the majority of the earth. I'm scared of three-fourths of the Earth's surface. Exactly. That's... <laughs> Spielberg just weaponized Earth. So the other sort of cultural touchstone that I have to this film, it's one of the very few iconic songs that you can play on the mm-hmm. piano if you know nothing about the piano. Right, right. So we had like a piano in my house, and I, I couldn't play piano as a kid. So... You know, so Jaws, it was always Jaws. Well, what, a, and the thing is, is we, without having ever seen it, that's one an amazing thing about music, right? Is that we've all seen Jaws through that song more than we've seen probably the film, right? I mean, like it became something you would parody in cartoons or other films. Um, it was it, it, an iconic moment in film history, really, which is amazing because the rest of the music in this film, and I'm going to tell you right now, the music in this movie outside of that theme is hot, hot garbage. I mean, 
every like I'm am I supposed is this supposed to be an upbeat nature moment when they're like chasing the shark? I'm like this is supposed to be tense, but it's just like there's like little whistles and and fun violins going up. I'm like, wait, there's there's imminent danger. Like that's what I'm supposed to be feeling. Because it's in the beginning of the movie, they nail it. Like one thing that Spielberg does that's incredible is that after the first attack and they're in the water, he does a great job of cutting all sound except for skin and water. They can, they can play out here on the beach. All right, let them go. Because on the beach, you can hear people talking, you can hear some music playing in the background, but then as soon as they cut to the water, it's just silent with just the the sound of like hands paddling in the water of a little raft like yeah. kind of splashing up and down and that is and it is an incredible moment of tension and then when it goes back to the beach you feel comfortable like what they do is every time you go to the water you get tense every time mm-hmm. you go out into the land it's more upbeat it's this incredible way that that he creates tension without any shark but just the threat well of the shark that's is right oh so good and just doing a little bit of research on this the reason why that was is that they could not get the mechanical shark to work in salt water. <laughs> so Spielberg. <laughs> That's amazing. They, they designed a remote controlled shark in a pool or something. Right. And then when they shipped it out to uh, the East Coast, put it in salt water, it just stopped working. So Spielberg oh was like, gosh. I'm going to have to figure out how to represent this shark without a shark. So if they had better mechanics, Steven Spielberg's a worse director. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because so much of what makes this film work is the absence of the thing that you're horrified of, right? Exactly right, and I think that's, I think that, in my opinion, that's the case in most horror films. I heard an interview with him. What he said was, when I couldn't get the shark to work, I thought, what would Hitchcock do? And mm. so he totally went to Hitchcock, and he thought, well, the thing that you don't see scares you more than the thing that you do see. And because this film was such a success, I think that you see that through all kinds of films, including Tarantino, and you could just right. name a, a dozen of films that, that use this technique. Yeah, I mean, that's just crazy to think that if, if somebody had been able to perfect gears that can, that don't corrode in salt water, there would be no Schindler's List. <laughs> if you'd like to hear our more complete coverage, you can search for Cocoons of Horror wherever you search for podcasts.